0: First John three eighteen through twenty four, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not come us we have confidence before god and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him and this, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son jesus christ and love one another just as he commanded us whoever keeps his commandments abides in god and god in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us this is the word of the lord yeah thanks be to god kids thanks for reading that to us uh we're so grateful for your service every week i was supposed to mention real quick uh, before we get into our, our sermon today, uh, for Drive-In Worship, if you'd help us out, will you please a comment, if you're on Facebook right now, in the section, I'm thinking about coming or I'm interested, uh, so that we can get somewhat of a head count. It, it will depend how many we have on what medium we use, whether we go through the radio station or use an actual outdoor sound system, uh, depending on how many people will, are thinking of coming. So help us out if you don't mind doing that. Well, in our first couple of weeks of looking at First John, we talked about it being a different than Paul's kind of letters, 1 John is a letter too. Rather than a clear, logical flow of argument and thought, it reads more like a a great piece of music, a symphony or or movie soundtrack where familiar melodic lines keep popping back up. Think of the opening notes of, of Star Wars that we all know, and that they always repeat those melodies throughout the movies. Well, John repeats his big notes to make a big point, really. If we were to pick out the two biggest reoccurring melodies or themes in this letter, they would be this: believe in Jesus and love others. Hence, the title of our series, "Love and Light for Life." Love others as as Jesus did, and light, equating the truth of Jesus. God is light. Jesus is the light of the world, the light of of truth. Remember, it was a short letter written by the Apostle John to a church who'd lost members from their body due to heretical teachings about obedience and, and heretical teachings about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And yet those who left the church, they still claim to be followers of Christ. So John gives us lots of practical tests we've talked about for discerning the validity of our faith and assurance of our secure standing with Jesus. Well, this morning we start with a question. What is the human heart? Now, I'm not talking about the the flesh and blood muscle that that pumps and and keeps your blood flowing all throughout your body and your extremities. But I'm talking about this kind of heart, the heart the Bible speaks of. Luke 6.45 says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Or Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The human heart, as the Bible describes it, is a complex kind of center of who we are, who you are. It produces your internal life. It's like you're Causal core, I've heard it described. Or, you know, using computer language, your central processor. It's a gift from God when it's working the way God intended it. But it's also tainted and impacted by our sinful nature. And Jeremiah says it's even deceptive. It's the place that drives our will. It helps us make decisions. It produces emotions. And when you examine your heart on any given day, you might like what you find there on the one hand, or you may be crushed by the weight of it when you look and see what's there inside of you. The heart can make us do crazy things and and think even at times horrible, self-condemning thoughts. You know that inner dialogue. You call yourself a Christian, your heart may say. Ah, what if they knew your inner heart, the real you? What about what you did in your 20s? Remember that? What about what you did last night? you better not go to church tomorrow. In fact, you you better hide from God. That inner heart, self-condemning dialogue. When John's goal has been to give us assurance and confidence in our hearts that we know, we know God. But many times we know even our believing heart can accuse us, causing us to doubt this. However, here's our big idea today. The truths of the gospel are bigger than any accusation that can be brought against a child of God, even if it's an internal accusation. And believing these truths frees you to to self-forgetfulness and the love of one another, which will give you an abiding assurance. So let's look at three types of heart this morning. Grab your outline. Hopefully you got 1 John open to chapter 3. As we begin by looking at this, the first heart. The first one's this. The presence of love, John teaches us this morning, love for one another, gives this type of heart an assurance of the presence of residing truth. Our first heart is the assured heart that John wants us all to have. A heart that is confident, a heart that boldly approaches God. As these verses speak in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Or Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence then, that's the kind of heart John wants you to have, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a heart that lives out of assurance, confidence, boldly approaches the throne room of God in prayer, Hebrews says. A heart that says, I know my God, He knows me, and we live life together. John 3.18, the first verse in our passage today, is the hinge verse between the passage David preached so well on last week so grateful for him uh, as he preached last week uh, that hinge verse and it was the ethical test that said if you know you know jesus you will be more like him this year than last here was the verse you hear it read uh, chapter 318 little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth it serves as the reminder again that ethical test if you know you know Jesus, you'll change. You'll be like him. You'll grow. He will continue to work in and through you. If you see a growing love for others, not just lip service, but actual sacrificial acts, then verse 19 says, there is a reassurance, an assurance that you are one who is of the truth. That's what our first point says. The presence of love for one another gives our heart assurance of the presence of truth, that it's taken root, that it's residing in our hearts because we're changed from the inside out. We've talked throughout this series of of fruit that comes from a transformed root. As Jesus said, out of the good heart, good fruit's produced. Out of the evil heart, evil fruit. Now, this assurance that verse 19 is talking about It isn't just just ethical. Hey, I I do good things, so hey, I'm assured of my salvation. The assurance is also, you might call it, relational or or cognitive or or internal. What do I mean by that? The more you live in compliance with God's commands, the more you gain a deeper understanding of God, of his heart, and, and what pleases him oh, this is how the world works. Oh, 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 this is how we all flourish. This is how Christ lived and loved. Oh, I see the deep joy. This is how God designed me to work and live. That kind of assurance. A deepened understanding of your God, which gives a deeper assurance. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us. I want us to think of those who are who work in some of the great trades, or some people that are they're skilled at working with the material of the world or or with their hands, metal workers, mechanics, those that work the land, farmers or animal husbandry, those that take care of animals and and, and use them for their goods that they are from God to us or or builders of all kinds or engineers now. On day one of working as a mechanic or a farmer or a house framer, if someone asked you, what do you do for a living? Well, you'd answer, I'm a framer. I'm a mechanic. And you'd be correct. But imagine what takes place in those fields as you learn by doing that takes place in those types of jobs, the experience of the ins and outs and the the parts and pieces and even the culture surrounding each of those fields. And then being asked... 30 years into a career as a farmer, a mechanic, a framer, well, what do you do? Well, you'd say, I'm a farmer. But the answer, 30 years later, it carries that experience, that knowledge, oh, this is how the farming world works. Oh, this is how my crop flourishes. This is how a farmer lives and loves. Oh, I see the deep joy. This is how God designed farming to work. What a different answer at the beginning of that career and then at the end it's the same in the christian life on day one you're asked who are you and you say i'm a christian and that's true but imagine asking that on your deathbed being asked that what are you oh i'm a lover of jesus a follower of my savior one who loves what he loves one who walks the way of the cross as he laid down his life so i want to i want to as well oh yes i'm a christian that's the deep assurance john wants you to gain from obedience not just hey look i do good so oh i know i'm a christian no 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 he wants a christian who knows his trade who knows his craft who knows what a disciple looks like because they've They've lived with Jesus. They've walked with Him. They've lived in life's trials in obedience. It's the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord. There's the commands. That I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. What do you see the psalmist there? He's learning by doing. Teach me lord so so i can walk in your truth and in so in so doing unite my whole heart to you that's the kind of obedient assurance god wants for us but hearing verse 318 not to to love just in speech but in deed and truth why is it so hard why is it so hard i think one of the reasons is because Much of our self-sacrificing doesn't carry the grand, heroic weight of of winning a battle or or raising a championship trophy over our head with thousands cheering us on. Most acts of self-sacrificial love are mundane. The 10,000th diaper changed. One more phone call or visit to an aging parent. One more load of laundry. Absorbing your child's anger one more time behind closed doors rather than lashing back out at them. Helping someone behind the scenes financially. Or standing alone by the bedside of a dying loved one. Returning a gentle answer to your spouse. No one's going to stand there and applaud you for those. Most of those are done in the private of your home. But man, that is where a lot of our discipleship is lived out. They are... Mundane, ordinary, trivial. Even like a thousand little deaths, Richard Richard Foster said. Take a look at his quote from Celebration of Discipline. This is why it's hard. In some ways, we prefer to hear Jesus' call, he says, to deny father and mother houses and land for the sake of the gospel than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial, he says, gives the feel of adventure. But in everyday service, we much experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. You see, every day where we live most of our life is not in the grand heroic deeds and raising a trophy to adoring fans and crowds. Service is the little deaths of going beyond ourselves daily, What makes it so hard is that when we look inside, when we examine our own heart, as John has asked us to do a few weeks back, we realize we aren't capable of sustaining this long term on our own, in a marriage, in a family, in a church life. Not only that, we have an enemy who loves to accuse us and condemn us. So while it's possible to have this first type of heart, this assured heart, and John wants us to have it, and God wants us to have it. The reality is is sometimes we find ourselves with the second type of heart that John addresses, the condemned heart. So let's look at that. Our second heart is a condemned heart that can become a confident heart as it turns outward and upward to God, John describes. Now, a condemning heart, is we're going to talk about it for a few minutes this morning, a condemning heart can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Let's talk about the good condemning heart first. Verse 19 tells us that we can have assurance in God's presence, the NIV says, or the ESV says, uh, before him. And verse 21 speaks of praying before God, in front of, face to face, with him. However, you see in verse 20 there, John makes a quick transition in verse 20 to being before God in 19 to verse 20, having a condemned heart all of a sudden. It's a quick transition. So often in popular culture, God's portrayed as one who is manageable. Think of Morgan Freeman's voice coming from up on high to you. It's been in a couple movies. Or God's portrayed as disinterested or detached or aloof. And to come before him, to be in his presence is to kind of surprise him. Oh, you're here. Or to, to negotiate with him. Come, come on, God, do this for me and I'll do this for you that's how our culture kind of portrays coming before God one of my kids was asking me last week what would it be like to see an angel And I said well if the reports of the Bible are accurate it would probably be terrifying at first such bright glory and blazing power oftentimes angels had to say uh, don't fear don't be afraid I'm here to give you some good news okay hold on a second Now, if that's what it's like with a created angelic being, what is it like to come into the presence of God? To come before him, as our passage today says. In some sense, it should feel very condemning. In the Bible, one of the signs that you're actually coming into the presence of God is that your heart condemns you. It's traumatic, so to speak, I heard described by one pastor this week. It's trauma to the human soul and heart think of the disciples in the boat to illustrate this remember they went out in the boat with jesus and they go out in the middle of the sea i think of galilee i think it was and this great storm arises mighty waves and wind and they're being tossed to and fro and they're about to flood that boat and capsize and die remember what jesus is doing he was asleep asleep in the bow of the boat head on a pillow, and they wake him. Jesus, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die? And he stands up. Can you imagine this scene? And the the scripture records that instantly, not a general natural settling down of waves and winds, but instantly he stilled the wind and waves with with a couple words, be still. Now, with fear of death alleviated, you would expect to see the disciples high-fiving jumping up and down, Peter doing a cannonball off the side of the boat into the lake. No. They say, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? They are terrified, condemned. Their hearts are undone. Why? When you come into the presence of God before his face, it is it is a complete revealing. It's, a, it's an unraveling. Because you realize, look at my heart before this one. Now you, you know your sins like the crew of the Titanic knew the tip of the iceberg. Only the tip, right? That's all they saw. Verse 20 says, he knows all things. He knows your heart. He knows the depths of your sin. And yet he still loves you. So sometimes this condemning heart doubts don't you sometimes have doubts sometimes you disobey sometimes you hate rather than love and you hear verse 18 this morning you think i I, I have so much trouble doing that and this comes out of nowhere and i get really bothered in my heart and my conscience accuses and condemns me this shouldn't be we ask right there's a whole movement in christian circles right now in particular directed uh, at, at some of our christian women in particular that says Any hint of guilt and shame is wrong. It's just self-imposed. It's just cultural conditioning, and you need to be liberated from that oppression. Can you imagine getting to the end of your life, as you've heard in pop culture, and people, I got no regrets. No regrets. If you can get to the end of your life and say, no regrets, you haven't come before the face of God. So what do you do with that condemning heart? What do you do when it happens? Well, like we said, in one way it's a good sign. It's a sign that you're actually truly reckoning with yourself before God. But our culture would tell you, you know what? If you're hard self-condemning, you know what your problem is? It's just low self-esteem. You know what? Don't worry about what others say or what some old book says God thinks. Set your own standards. And, you know, judge yourself based on that. You do you. You have your truth, I'll have mine. You know what the problem is? We can't even set our own standards. And then we feel bad for being, and we condemn ourselves for being people that can't even keep our own standards. Or we feel bad because we realize, ah, I'm the type of person who sets my standards so low that I actually can keep them. Imagine for a moment you had a digital recorder hanging around your neck that recorded what we do, it's our cell phone, right? Let's say in your pocket. But it was always turned on. And every time you responded with criticism. Or shock and disgust at someone breaking a standard that you have set for yourself. Imagine then playing back that recording at the end of your life. How many of them would you have kept perfectly? How many of them would you have broken yourself, your very own standards? The truth is that sometimes the condemnation that comes from your your heart is good. Because the closer you get to the light, the more you see your own flaws, your own shortcomings, your own sin. Like the mirror at the dermatologist, you ever put your face in front of that thing? I mean, it shows every blemish. You realize, like, oh, that's, what is that, doctor? You know, you didn't even see it. The more you see the need of your Savior, the more, as you see your flaws, you'll see your need of your Savior and the depths of what he went through for you. The more you see that, your assurance grows. That's the good type of condemnation that the Lord wants to deal with in our heart. But clearly in this passage, it's pretty clear there's a bad type too, a bad type of condemnation. This is the kind that comes from being unable to forgive yourself. How many struggle with that? How many of you? Something that you've never been able to let go, never been able to forgive yourself of. We judge ourselves, and this is when the Christian heart begins to accuse with words like, well, Christ and be died for some of my sins, but you're gonna let yourself off the hook for that one. You know, sometimes they even believe this is even a, a demonic oppression of even believers that comes along self-accusing thoughts. Sometimes we think are just our own. Here's the problem: you may be the type of person who for, can forgive himself for flying off the handle at his kids real easy, but a mess up in front of your church friends or coworkers, you can't forgive. Or maybe you're easy on yourself for work mistakes, but man, that sexual sin I had, I just can't forgive myself. Or maybe you're the type of person, yeah, sexual sin, no big deal to you. Oh, but I can't forgive myself for that one thing I said that one time to my son. If you can't forgive yourself, in that moment, there is something, some other thing that is a greater source of your identity than God. Maybe it's what others think of you. Your image is a good parent or a good churchgoer, image is a great employee or worker. Something has become greater in your life, a lowercase g God, and you know what? Those lowercase g gods will never forgive you. You know, you may say you believe you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but functionally, when you're not forgiving yourself, it's because you've been feeling good by achieving. And you failed that other lowercase g God in your life. It's your own self-salvation project. The only God who forgives is the actual God. So John says to get rid of the bad type of condemning heart, John says, look to him. Uh, Our instinct would be Adam and Eve's instinct. What did they do? Run and hide. That's the instinct in your heart. That's the self, the bad type of self-condemning that says, you did it again. Turn your back. Get, he doesn't want to see you. He's turned his back. You might as well turn yours. But here's the truth. He knows all things about you. He knows all things, John says in this passage. And yet, he still forgives you in Jesus. That has to be your identity. And when you come to him, do you know what you find? I love how Dane Ortl- Ortlund says it in his new book, Gen- Gen- Gentle and Lowly, it's called. He says this. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness, John says it in this passage, far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. So what do we do when the heart condemns? You look upward. You look outward, away from our condemning heart, back to God. He knows the depth of the iceberg. And he chooses to still love you in Jesus. So don't wrongly condemn yourself. You are freed in jesus remember chapter three and four only come on the heels of chapter two in which john already told us if we sin we have an advocate with the father and his name is jesus christ the righteous there's a place in first corinthians 4 where paul exudes this kind of humble confidence this humble heart this heart that's not self-condemning. He's showing us in 1 Corinthians 4 how to deal with a condemned heart in the believer. What do you do with that ongoing nagging guilt, that self-hatred, that disappointment in yourself? Here's what Paul says. It's absolutely brilliant. It's off our radar. We don't live like this, but God wants us to. Here's what Paul says. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. He goes on to say, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience, my heart, my conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. He still knows he's a sinner. And then he says this, it is the Lord who judges me. What is he doing? He's doing verse 21. He's looking to God for his identity. His judgment doesn't come from someone else or even from himself, he says. He won't go there. He won't play that game. He isn't getting his self-worth from what people think of him or even himself. He says, it comes from God. Paul knows his sins. He says, I'm not innocent. But he knows they're forgiven. So he doesn't attach those sins to his identity. He's already been tried and excused in the courtroom of heaven because Jesus took it for him. His advocate, John says in this letter, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so what does he do? He moves out into his life to love others and love God in humble confidence. Not because he thinks less of himself, that just beats himself up. No, 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 that's not it with poor self-esteem because he's now, as C.S. Lewis said, able to think of himself less to get that not that he thinks of him uh, less of himself now but he thinks of himself less Tim Keller in his great little pamphlet the freedom of self-forgetfulness says this is what the gospel does to us this gives us his confidence his humility at the same time makes us the most bold people there are but also the most humble he said this gospel humility is not needing to think about myself not needing to connect things with myself. He's referring to Paul's passage we just read. It's an end to thoughts such as, well, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. He calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Or as John would say in our letter, in his language, he would say that blessed reassurance or that blessed confidence you can have. And when you live this way in your heart, when your heart becomes confident in God and thinks of selfless, you know what happens? We become finally the third type of heart. It becomes the confident heart that becomes the praying heart, the obeying and the abiding heart. That's the logic and the flow of this passage today. Seeing our assurance we can have in the love for others, but knowing that sometimes will give us a condemned heart, but looking to God then to have that reassured, confident, gospel, gospel, bold, humble heart, then to move out in prayer and obedience and abiding. You know, many of us have grown up on this Disney message about our hearts, and I'm going to tell you this morning, don't believe it. Disney's message to legions and generations of children has been You need to just look inside yourself. Trust your heart and and trust your feelings. That's your compass. That's your guide. You know what that is? That's a recipe for uneasiness for your heart. Because that's the kind of heart that's so self-introspective, so self-turned and curved in on itself. That's the kind of heart that cannot trust that his or her prayers will be answered because they're primarily self-seeking and self-driven only not prayers from an obedient, God-pleasing heart that verse 22 says. A a confident heart in God is a heart that becomes, as, as John says in the end of this passage, a heart that's all about obeying God, a heart that's all about pleasing God, a heart that's all just focused on believing in God. Verse 22 says this, and whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments, and do what pleases Him. Verse 23, this is His commandment. We believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Now many hear verse 22 and think, well, is that a blank check on prayer? Anything I ask at any time, under any circumstance, with any condition of my heart, I can write at this blank check, and whatever I request, it will come true? Now these verses always have to be taken in context. And in the context here in 1 John, is the person who prays confidently is a person who, the verse says it right there, is keeping God's commandments and pleasing him, verse 22 says. And we read verse 23 that the commandment is obeying Jesus by believing in him and loving others. There's those two grand melodies again. So why is this the type of person who can have confidence that her prayers will be answered? Why is this the type of person, a believing, obedient person? Here's why. Because when you're living out of this type of heart, obedient, believing in Jesus, living out his commandments, walking in his path of light, when you're living out of this type of heart, your prayers will inevitably align up with his will, not your own. That's where you get the confidence. Charles Spurgeon nails this one. Here's what he said about it. Here's why he said you can have confidence your prayers will be answered. He says, the man of obedience is the man whom God will hear, Because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission. For he feels it to be his highest desire that the Lord's will should be done. Hence it is the man or the obedient heart prays like an oracle. His prayers are prophecies. Is he not one with God? Does he not desire and ask for exactly what God intends? How can this type of prayer, shot from such a bow, ever fail to reach its target. And so there it is. The the confidence in prayers doesn't come as a one-to-one where God says, well, if you do that, I'll give you that. No, no, no. It comes from the fact that an obedient heart is a heart that is lined up with God's will. His will first, not our own. And so we can have that confidence that we're praying according to His will. And so therefore, He will answer. Verse 24 says, and then lead us into a life that abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Again, to close this morning, this life John describes is so much more than just believing a few more things about Jesus it's so much more i hope you're getting this from first john it's so much more than just keeping a few rules no 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 it's not just the objective it's also the subjective and experiential no this life is life on life communion with god knowing you know him a heart that finds its assurance in jesus finds its identity and acceptance in jesus And then this provides a motivation and assurance to combat that condemned heart you've been battling with for decades. Which gives us then that confident heart that has real exchange with God in prayer. This is not a flat 2D Zoom call that we're all getting used to. Flat screen interaction. No, no. This is face-to-face, 3D, life-on-life, living in communion with God. Knowing you know God assurance from the assurance of his abiding presence let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the relationship that you have made available to us one of deep experiential identifying with you and real knowing communion in prayer and discussion and so lord we ask that you do this in our heart. Spirit, give us that sense of your abiding presence. Let us turn from self-condemning hearts upward and outward to you, God, knowing that the God who knows all things gives us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And then let us have confidence, gospel, bold, humble hearts that move out in belief and obedience. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.